Hello and welcome to Telling Stories. My name is James Trupani. We are back this week. And I apologise for the technical issues we've had over the last couple of weeks. Um, but as you can tell, we're back with the studio. We have better sound quality and I hope you enjoy today's show. I'm going to make a return to the Forgotten Tag Team series and look at the very start of tag team wrestling in North America and therefore tag team wrestling in the world. It really was an American adventure and an American invention. It became popularized in Japan and in Europe, thanks to teams like the Fabulous Royal Brothers and, of course, the Funks in Japan, but it was an American story and a little bit of an Australian story and a little bit of a New Zealand story as well. There has been some threads that have gone through professional wrestling throughout the 20th century that we're going to bring together today. From Tootsmont to the Sheep Herders, we're going to talk pro wrestling, tag team wrestling, some of my favorite wrestling. Tootsmont is the man responsible for giving us tag team wrestling as we know it today. Alongside his Gold Dust Trio's partner, Ed Strangle Lewis and Billy Sando, Toots was a creative mind in much the same mold as Vince McMahon Jr. In fact, one could argue he was even more ambitious in his planning, given the starting point wrestling had at the time. Mont learned his craft by a correspondence course from the first true superstar of wrestling, Martin Farmer Burns, in the late 19th century. He had become a Carnival Circuit regular at the age of 16 and a protégé of Burns, touring with the Shoot and Hook specialist as the century turned. Mont was a policeman. He'd be the one that was most feared in the locker room, a judge, jury and executioner of the promoter. If he was looking like a wrestler wasn't going to toe the line, it'd be Toots less than gentle persuasion that would get them back with the programme for the good of the company. Wrestling at the time was nothing like what we see today. It was based strongly in the sports format, and while some of the matches were worked, the rules were enforced by a state athletic commission with great zeal. This meant contests were largely shoot affairs and would go literally on for hours. Main events would be the best of three falls, often with an interval between each fall, better for selling concessions. The action was slow and ponderous. Wrestling's first phase of popularity that flourished from when George Hackenschmidt was champion had started to dry up. One of those cyclical moments we are all too familiar with in pro wrestling. The timing of the Gold Dust Trio's business arrangement was fortuitous. Lewis had worked his way into contention for the World's Heavyweight title in the early 20s. He moved on from the management of Jerry Walls and started a relationship with Billy Sandow. Sandow was another hooker, but a lighter wrestler and with a businessman's mind. Unafraid of taking risks, he once lost his entire health club chain in a wrestling match bet. He had the right attitude to business, and a business that needed to start changing if it was to be brought to the masses. In turn, Sandow looked for a new policeman, a sparring partner and alternate opponent, should things go awry. Farmer Burns recommended Mont, and the three worked their way to the world's title in coming years. Mont then began to apply his visionary zeal. Whilst wrestling up until then had been a sports orientated, the fix was often in. Mont took that as an opportunity and started to apply theatrical thought processes to it. Wrestling would keep some of the mat work and required for pacing and good storytelling, but add some elements of boxing and stand-up fighting. The object of a match would be to work towards finish. While wrestling had always been three falls to a finish, it was now shortened up to a time limit. This gave it a narrative edge. Leave the ring also became permissible with the introduction of count-outs. Around 90% of what you see in wrestling today was invented by Toots Mont in this time period. One of his other great inventions would be tag team wrestling. Whilst the slam-bang western style, as Mont called it, was a hit, it also changed the business dynamic. Promoters now wanted total control over a packaged product. Lewis may well have been the dominant star and champion, but he realised that he needed other marketable challenges to keep interest in himself, the title and wrestling. Hackenschmidt had been great, but boring. The idea of the feud was born. While singles wrestling flourished, the introduction of a boxing-style ring at all events allowed for tag-team wrestling. Realising that if two stars in a match would be a great draw, then logically four stars would make even more money. While the prestige would always be in the championship matches, tag wrestling popped houses across the country. 
While tag team wrestling itself had been around since the turn of the century, San Francisco promoted tag bouts back in 1901. The faster pace of Mont's style, its acrobatic nature under the new rules, and the fact that matches were no longer three hours long, heightened the excitement and allowed for double team manoeuvres. It was a whole new world. While the hero-villain story ideas of wrestling at the time were primitive, it allowed for a basic storytelling device to exist. However, tag wrestling would develop slowly. Superstar teams would not come along for later in its history, when people started to see the possibilities. As always, it would take someone who thought a little differently to move things forward. Al Costello was a journeyman singles wrestler who was called the Man of a Thousand Holes, but it wasn't his technical flash that would put him on the map. It's just what had got him established. He developed the idea of a heel tag team that would break the mould and build heat from within the match itself, as well as being a draw in a more traditional sense. Born in the Giacomo coast, he was an Italian by birth, but Australian by nationality, who had caught on in the US. He floated the idea to Joe Blanchard, Texas native, future San Antonio promoter, father of Tully Blanchard, and grandfather of Tess. He thought the idea was a goer, and Costello proceeded with caution. The principal of the team would be an ultra-nationalist Australian tag team called the Fabulous Kangaroos. Coming to the ring in bush hats, carrying boomerangs, ideal foreign objects, and to the tune of Waltzing Matilda, they were natural heel-getters with their xenophobic ways. Blanchard recommended Roy Hefferman, former Costello training partner for the team, and Costello agreed. They began their career in 1957 in Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling. The Kangaroos were a smash-heel hit. They would be at the top of the tag team division shortly afterwards. What made them a success was a constant underhanded tactics and their true double-team manoeuvres. They were the pinnacle of innovation. Although teams of only 10 years later would left them for dust in double-team stakes, they had some slick finishes, including a rather nifty slingshot backdrop combo called the Flying Kangaroo Leap. Essentially, their match plan was to get their opponent into the corner and keep hitting him until he was weak enough to use every foul tactic possible. Moving on from Stampede, their next stop would be the WWWF of Vince McMahon Sr. They got over quickly, very quickly in fact, Wrestling at Madison Square Garden one night against the beloved Antonio Rocco Miguel Perez, they nearly caused a riot. Vince Sr.'s standard practice of maintaining civil obedience was put in place, turn up the lights and play the national anthem. Thankfully, the fans stopped throwing rocks and drinks at the kangaroos long enough to put their hands on the heart instead and left them unharmed. It was a sign of things to come and their success that they would have. Next, it was off to Amarillo for Dory Funk Sr. They received their first title run as the NWA World's Tag Team Champions, the Texas version, beating Pepe Gomez and El Medico on the 17th of November 1958. They would only hold on to the belts for two weeks. A trip to New Mexico would also bear fruit, but then it was back to New York. Their aim was the NWA United States Tag Team Championship, and on July 21st, 1960, they would relieve Red and Lou Bastion of the title belts. It would be a title they would hold three times over the next 18 months. Then it would be down to Florida, where they would be recognized as US champions, even though they'd never left New York with them then on to Ohio in 1962, before running Japan Pro Wrestling, where they would hold the NWA International Tag Team titles, now part of the Double Cup in all Japan Pro Wrestling. They went barnstorming for the next few years, heading out west to the outlaw WWA, where they took the WWA World Tag Team titles from Edouard Carpentier and Ernie Ladd. They would then head back to Canada, where they would be fixed as the NWA All-Star Wrestling in Vancouver, a place they were so over as heels that one night they would be forced to hide under the ring while the fans pelted chairs at them, predating the famous public enemy chair incident at ECW Arena by some 30 years. Mind you, even the Philly fans would probably draw the line that happened in Vancouver. After diving for cover from the raining chairs, the fans decided to smoke out the kangaroos and their six-man partner Stan Stasiak by setting fire to the ring. Thankfully, order was restored. But it showed the level of intensity they could get from the crowd and how believable they were as heels. It wasn't that they did anything big, it was just a slow burn of continuing arrogance and xenophobia. They would start the TV matches with a warm-up routine, usually stretches and some arm wrestling contests. 
They, of course, delay the start of the match while their referee looked on bewildered. There was, of course, a need to show how Australian they were, so a rampant flag-waving was in vogue. From there, they would actually wrestle in a fairly scientific way, showing that they could if they wanted to play it straight, which infuriated the fans even more when they took to rule-bending. What really wound the crowd up was the double teams, which were basic, but advanced for the time, all done within the five count. Face teams wouldn't double-team back then. It was considered ungentlemanly, especially in TV matches where the teams were thrown together almost at random. They proved their superiority by fair means and foul. Effenden grew tired of the grind, though. At the top of every car they appeared on, he decided to go home. He'd set out in 1963 to travel the world, a bid in which he'd succeeded to do, so the kangaroos were no more. Costello would continue in North America. He found a partner, Carl von Breuer, and formed the Internationals. After that, he floated around with several partners. In 1967, he decided it was time to bring back the kangaroos. We'll leave the stories of the kangaroos there. One of the greatest tag teams ever in professional wrestling, and people who set the tone of what heels should be. Thank you for listening to Telling Stories today. My name's James Troopany. You can find us at Troopany Show on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at The Troopany Show and on Patreon, where you can keep The Troopany Show channel free forever for everyone. Please listen to Sheriff Lone Star and the Deputies of Hardback. <laughs> Sheriff Lone Star and the Deputies of Heartbreak, who wrote the theme tune for this song, and go see our sponsors, powerslam.tv and Indie Empire Wrestling Magazine.